Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and really excited about speaking with our guest today. She is a quote-unquote former hot mess. And so she's not mad if somebody calls her that. I know as a guy I get in trouble for calling people a hot mess. <laughs> but as a former hot mess and world-class awfulizer, we're going to have to use Grammarly for that awfulizer. She's now a thriving mentor. She's an author, and she is an EFT trainer for empaths, creatives, and lightworkers. And she's also the author of a just-released American bestseller, Empathic Mastery. She's one of 18 master trainers for EFT International here in the U.S. and a mentor and healer for other highly sensitive intuitives. She's a sensitive, she's a sensitive from the get-go, and she's experienced her first prophetic dream when she was the tender age of nine, and she's been navigating her extrasensory awareness ever since, supporting lightworkers, creatives, and unicorn entrepreneurs to use their abilities for good is her greatest passion. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome the author, Jennifer Moore. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much, Hamza. It's so good to be here. So good to be here, too. I'm glad you made it. And for those that listen to the podcast know, one of the first podcasts that we had so many years ago was about there not being any accidents. And when I reached out to you, Jen, and your assistant, I was thinking, wow, I used to be knee-deep into the EFT world, and it kind of went away. And so mm. running into you was a really good refresher to kind of get back if I was lost for a little bit in the wilderness. You know, it's so, so this is another one of there's no mistakes because I was talking with my EFT mentor today because we were putting our heads together about a training that I'm helping him with. And we were talking about how when you discover EFT, there is this personal, there's this process or this place where a lot of us kind of find ourselves kind of out in the wilderness and sort of like just kind of not really knowing where to go from there with it. So it's kind of funny that you're talking about that experience of it dropping off for you and that reminder of like, oh, I want to come back to this because that is something that we as trainers have absolutely seen and practitioners have seen, you know, as kind of a common thing. It's like people discover it then they kind of go, hmm, not so sure. And then they, and then a lot of times when things start to get a little strange in life, they can come back. It's so interesting because uh, we were talking a little bit before the recording about how bad my ADHD was, and it's so bad that my doctor called it ADOS, which is attention deficit ooh shiny. And so <laughs> I'm just kind of laughing because I, I'm, I, I'm guilty of this, and I'm sure some others listening are like this too where you pick up something and it works. And you're like, I should just stick with it. But then something else shiny comes along, and it's like, oh, I need to try that. And it's more of a FOMO or fear of missing out. And I think the wonderful uh, aspect of life is that we'll never get it right, and it'll be there when we need it. Absolutely, absolutely. And in case anybody who's listening to is, is, is going, what the heck is EFT? Um, just to clarify, EFT stands for the words emotional freedom techniques. It's also known as sort of the umbrella term is tapping. And the simplest way to describe it is that it's a form of emotional acupuncture where you put light pressure or tapping on acupuncture points of the body thinking about something that may be, you know, getting in your way. And by, by tapping on that, we can clear the energy and the emotions that are holding us back around it. So and thanks for the clarification uh, for introduction of EFT. And I was just wondering in the intro, uh, you had your prophetic dream at nine, and yeah. we're talking about EFT. So did you come out of the womb tapping, or was it a, a modality that you learned later on in life? So I really discovered EFT pretty late in life and, you know, well, not late in life, <laughs> not that old, but, um, you know, I've been struggling with being highly sensitive and empathic for many, 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 many years. And for most of my childhood and young 
teenage years into young adulthood, I just thought there was something wrong with me. I just thought that I was too sensitive, that I was overreacting, that I was taking things too personally, that I was, um, and that I was just destined to be miserable. And it wasn't until I started to work with a really gifted um, healer and psychotherapist who was very intuitive, who started to help me discover or notice that so much of the time when I was feeling distressed, it was in relation to having had a conversation with somebody who had been really upset themselves and then coming away feeling all depressed and and upset or being around somebody who was really angry and then finding myself feeling really angry. And so I spent many years aware of being highly sensitive and empathic and dealing with being really emotional without having the tool of EFT. And my thing, the thing for me about EFT was that when I first discovered it, I found it awkward. I found it weird. I felt like, you know, people are going to think, I mean, already people think I already thought that I was, I was, uh, you know, a bit of a weirdo. And so, like, the idea of tapping on my head and my face and everything, I was like, what are people going to think? But um, I basically, in a in a situation, in a, in, a, in a situation of absolute, just, you know, like extreme circumstances, I was in, we were driving through an ice storm and I was really panicking. And I asked my husband if he minded if I tapped um, because I just was like, I had nothing else to lose. And I went from, you know, like a, on the scale of zero to 10, I was at a 10 of abject terror, like, oh, my God, we're going to die in this ice storm. And I went from a 10 down to like a, you know, like a one of, yeah, we could get into a car accident um, within like three rounds of tapping. It was probably five, five, maybe 10 minutes to go from absolutely panicking to being calm. And that was when I went, oh, my God, there is something to this. And it was the first time in my life where I really started to feel like I could have, I could get a a handle on my emotions and get a handle on sort of all of this kind of worrying that was going on inside of me that people would say, calm down and let it go. And I'm just like, how? How do you even do that? Yeah, and on a lower note, I, I'm glad this is a high vibration conversation that we're having. I do want to go back for a second because at the beginning of your your book, you were talking about that drive and you were about to uh, cross that bridge. And yeah, I was about to drive off a bridge. <laughs> yes, I, I want you to talk about that because you dedicated it to two women, and yes. the first woman is an ancestor now and the other one isn't. And I lost one of my sisters uh, from not having that emotional mastery, if you will. And it's interesting of you. That's why I want you to share that, your your mind state of crossing that bridge and hitting that breakthrough to make you be allowed to still tell the story versus others that are not. Because 2020 is really challenging, and there's an increasing number of people not – having that emotional mastery. So uh, instead of us being on the cloud the whole hour, <laughs> I'd like to come down a little bit and talk about, if you don't mind, sharing your I mindset. I would add, no. You know, I mean, I think, well, and this is a whole thing about right now, I think one of the things that's really, is really perilous is that there are, there are, you know, is the whole sort of light washing and, you know, like keeping it all high vibe. It's like right now, we are going through one of the most treacherous, intense times as human beings that we've been through in a really long time. And I think it does us an incredible disservice to just be all like, just keep focusing on the positive. Because, you know, sometimes we absolutely must acknowledge the really hard stuff in order to move through it. And actually, you know, the whole thing with EFT is that it's a tool where we get to address the stuff that's really difficult and work with it. And I know that there are some people who are kind of more sort of high vibe who are like, don't focus on the negative. You'll draw it to you. You'll attract it. And what I would say is if, it's, if you're feeling it, it's already there. And it's sort of like you cannot put a Band-Aid over a wound and expect it to go away if you don't address it and clear it. 
And so, you know, for me, going back to the story, I was in my, I was, I was, I just graduated from art school. I didn't have a frickin' clue what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I was binging on sugar like it was going out of business, you know, like there, or like there was no tomorrow. And I was driving down to visit a friend in Kent, Ohio from Cleveland. And as I was going over this huge, huge bridge over a ravine, I decided I wanted to figure out what my, what my um, traffic ticket had to say, like what my toll was going to cost me, but I was a very new driver, and I didn't understand that wherever your eyes go, your wheel goes too. So the next thing I know, my car is facing a ravine, and I'm about to drive off a bridge. And so I cut the wheel really fast, and I swerved all over the place. It was a beautiful, sunny day, and there were no cars on the bridge, or I would not be here to tell you the story. But what came of that experience for me was, one, I scared the – can I swear? <laughs> Is that okay? Go for it. We're all adults. Okay. I scared the shit out of myself because what I realized was that I didn't have control and that where I had always assumed that as long as I chose not to do something stupid, as long as I chose not to do anything to cause myself direct harm, that I would be okay this was my wake-up call where I realized that my depression, my anxiety, my distress was so big that it was, going, it, was going, it was affecting my ability to take care of myself and protect myself. And so that's when I realized, like, not only was it about saying I'm willing to be alive, it was really about I'm willing to do whatever it takes to keep myself safe so that I don't cause, I don't sabotage myself off a bridge. Yeah. And, and yeah. the fact that you're able to tell the story, it, it's uh, especially for those that uh, leave us or we're the ones that's left behind and we don't hear or we don't get a letter or anything like that. And we're always wondering, at, you know, all these scenarios that we'll never get answers to. And uh, you, you always hear if I could have only done something differently or if I would have mm. seen the signs. And there's so many people that are masked or masking or masquerading happiness where they're really uh, feeling those bouts of anxiety and depression. Absolutely. And, you know, you've talked about the two women that I dedicate the book to. And the one woman who keeps passing the open windows is thriving. You know, she is a highly sensitive, empathic woman who reached out and made a phone call at the moment of her moment of desperation, and her uncle kind of threw her a lifeline and pulled her up and out. And now she is teaching meditation, and she's empowering other people, and she's doing incredible work in this world. And the other woman who sadly, you know, sadly committed suicide now a number of years ago, you know, I don't think any of her friends or family had... People knew she was in a lot of physical pain. She had been struggling with physical pain for a very long time. And I will say that in my personal experience, there's a very, very strong link between our physical pain and our emotional pain. And that a lot of times when we address the emotional pain, our physical pain can subside. Um, And so many people knew this woman was in a great deal of, of physical pain, but I don't think many people had any idea how much emotional pain she was in. And she was the kind of person that everybody saw and thought was like a ray of sunshine and that she was just, she just went out of her way to be kind and good and nice to everybody. And, you know, she had such a sensitive heart. She had such, she had such a desire to make a difference in the world and to help other people. And I think in her particular case, one of her biggest challenges was that she had really taken on the misery of the world and had no, whether it was that she had no support or didn't believe she had support or, and I think didn't have any tools to process things in a way that made it possible to stick around. And, you know, I think the thing that is just so incredibly hard for everybody when they're, when we are in these places of, in these places of feeling like we're backed into a corner, having resources or tools that we can actually take a breath and get across, you know, get to that other side. And I know that when we are in those moments of those dark nights of the soul, that 
sometimes it's almost it's almost inconceivable that this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and and one thing that I want to highlight from the takeaway that you just said was the correlation with that emotional pain and physical pain. And I believe everyone, practitioner or not, should have You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay in their book list because it'll it, – are you familiar with that book? Oh, my God, yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, yes. It's such an important, such an incredibly important message. What a book. And oh, God bless St. Louise. What an amazing human being. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and and her story also, I mean, it wasn't, she wasn't on a cloud until the 50s, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. she had a really challenging life. And I, I think it speaks volumes. I think that's the message I really want to drive home that uh, for myself and others that, you know, today it, it'll pass too. Like there's nothing that's permanent. And so any situation that you're currently in, and I, I was thinking that because I, I was looking at the timeline of your book and when it had come out and when it had originally come out, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, you know, self-help or what have you. But that was prior to this year. It seems like, <laughs> <laughs> is everyone coming to you about being prophetic or is it like Harry Met Sally where the, that movie where they're interpreting it differently now with new eyes? You know, I've been around the highly sensitive empathic people for such a long time, and a lot of us have been feeling something coming down the pike for years. And so um, I think that it feels to me like it's more that the book is, I don't know, I mean, some people could say it was prophetic, but I think that in many ways the book was really, it's that the book, the book, the the audience has expanded to meet the book um, in terms of now, but yeah. I think that now more than ever, we need tools to navigate these wild, wild times. And, you know, one of the things that I see is that as things are, you know, right now, I think you'd have to be living under a rock with your head buried under the, in the sand below the rock to not notice that we have political fires going. We have literal environmental fires going. We've got a pandemic going. We have, you know, the the race relations blowing up in the United States and all kinds of different things that are like we are just, there's fires burning everywhere in in all over the planet, but especially in the U.S. And people who were not necessarily feeling the intensity of the world around them are waking up to their empathic sensitivity. And so it's kind of this vicious cycle or this tape loop where where what we had, you know, where many people were able to compartmentalize, were able to kind of just sort of keep like a bubble of, of, of innocence around them or a bubble of denial and privilege around them. Nowadays, more and more people are not able to block out the intensity So what's happening is more and more people are awakening to picking up the energy, the thoughts, the feelings, and the sensations that are coming from the world around them. And that, in turn, causes the whole thing to amplify. And I think that right now, as we are, you know, we are just in such an incredibly wild, wild, perilous time in the United States, I mean, particularly politically, I think that what's also happening is that there's an incredible amount of distortion and an incredible amount of, like, like the, the volume just keeps getting turned up emotionally and with propaganda and with everybody trying to promote their message that it's really hard for people to sort of feel their feet underneath them and feel like everything is going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Jim Self? No. Okay. So he's um, along the lines, I think he got his original education, if you will, life education, because uh, he was in the politics at, in his early 20s, but then he went to Berkeley Psychic Institute and then um, in the 70s and 80s, and he, he's still around today, you know, teaching. And then I'm actually an offshoot of Berkeley Psychic Institute here in Atlanta. There was a school uh, but more importantly, I, 
I bring him up because uh, in the conversation that we had in one of the early podcasts, we were talking about the year 2012. And so everyone's talking about, oh, the end of the world, what's going on, what have you. And his take is it was. It was a huge shift that happened, and now we're counting as if that was year one so or uh, year zero. So 2020 mm-hmm. would be year eight. And then mm-hmm. when you look at it from that aspect, it seems like, oh, okay, these are a lot of the shakeups that we have to embrace on the surface to actually move through it. So yeah. I wanted to get yeah. your take on that mindset. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's, there's a whole interesting component of this idea, this human idea of the earth is suddenly going to end, you know. And I believe that the earth, you know, um, I really love, it's funny, I, I love the glory be. I don't know if, you, if you're a person who, who prays, who prays the rosary at all, but there's, you know, there's sort of the piece of, you know, as it is, was from the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and, and in case somebody's wondering, I know I am not Catholic, I just pray the rosary. But um, but I love the continuity of, of the idea that the earth just keeps on going, and we humans have these sort of interesting constructs. And at the same time, I think that there are these, elevations that there are these periods of of switching from one frequency to another and what i think is actually i i would agree that we are in a frequency shift and a phase shift that is really substantial and i don't know if you've ever seen the you've ever seen the videos of like um a frequent you know like like the demonstration of what happens when a frequency gets shifted um Mm. but there are these somatic frequency videos where it's like they take a a speaker and then they take a metal plate and they put it on top of the speaker and they sprinkle sand or salt on top of it and then they play a specific frequency and at first all of the sand is just dancing around and doing this sort of like just total chaos and then all of a sudden it just kind of snaps into this perfect pattern but then as the frequency is dialed up and starts to shift to a new frequency even after the frequency is locked in there's a period of chaos where everything falls apart and everything goes to complete, it just, it just completely gets, just, it's a mess before things start to shake back into order and snap into an even higher form of order than it was before. So I guess the way I would think of it is that, and I would say for me, I think it does correlate with 2012, 2013, because 2012, right around this time of year, actually, in 2012, was right when um, stuff started to kick off in my world, and I can see absolutely how the life I'm living now was basically, like, started, like the seeds got planted right about now in 2012. So I would say, from my personal experience, that timeline completely fits, and the way I look at it is that I believe that we are shifting into a newer, a different, higher vibration. And just like birth, it's like birth is messy and it can be really intense and it can be really painful and it can be really chaotic. And for those of us who are choosing the path of, lo- of, of light work, the path of love, the path of support, the path of helping each other, I think the most important thing we can do is keep our feet on the path, stay as grounded as absolutely possible, keep our head on straight, and really keep our eye on the prize so that we do not get distracted by all of the craziness that is just swirling right now. Mm -hmm. It's so amazing of all the people, I, I actually stopped counting, of their life prior to 2012 and afterward. I mean, it's talk about huge shifts. Uh, people all walks of life. It, it's really, yeah. um, I guess it's comforting in my sense. And, mm-hmm. and I do want to talk to you about, you were talking about the somatic frequency. And I was originally introduced, I think around 20, 2003, 2004, Greg Braden had done a presentation about it at, uh, again, a Louise Hay, you, I Can Do It conference. And he was talking about the collective frequency when 9-11 happened. 
And I know in the book, in your book, you were talking about how, uh, as an empath, you were having the feelings beforehand. Uh, I wanted to know if you're looking at somatic frequencies for 2020 and if there are any similarities. You know, I definitely, I mean, I, I am, as a, as a sensitive, I tend to get a very embodied experience of, like, prophecy for things coming. Mm-hmm. And I, a lot of times, I will feel the sort of, I feel the ripples from the future ahead of time. And so I would say that, I there's there's been similar feelings of like uh, you know, kind of like a rabbit or something standing on the ground like feeling the feeling the earthquake coming that there have been and there were periods have been a number of periods over the course of the last like five months for me where I've been awakening at dawn um, with my heart pounding and feeling like I got plugged into an electric socket where I know that we are in this shift. I will also say, though, that I believe that so many people are aware of what is going on right now that, um, what, that a lot of people are projecting into the future and trying to figure out what's coming next. So I've been doing a lot of, like, not looking into the future other than if I see, if I look up and I see a light, you know, sort of in the window, I can be like, I can sense that on the other side of the winter solstice and on the other side of January, some of this heavy, the heaviness that we're in right now will have lifted and that there will be more air, there will be more clarity, there will be more new beginnings and new possibilities. But I've been personally making a real effort not to do any kind of like trying to see what's coming next or doing any sort of fortune telling about it. Because my, you know, what I say is sort of like there are way too many people who are sort of in the time, in the time streams right now. And there are a lot of sort of amateurs in the time streams right now. And so it's sort of like a lot of people are peeing in the time streams and it's getting pretty distorted. <laughs> so I like that. I'm, yeah. So, and, and I just, you know, for me, it's sort of like I know that the bottom line is that I need to continuously return to this moment right here, right now. And that actually goes back to the very, you know, the very beginning intro, talking about what it means to be a world-class awfulizer. And for me, awfulizing is about the ability to take a situation and to spin it forward into the absolute worst-case scenario that it could possibly be. And there is, you know, the advantage of this is that you can sort of like troubleshoot problems and sort of preemptively imagine how to stop them. But the problem is that we can work ourselves into such a lather worrying about something that hasn't even come to pass and just creating scenarios of just sheer hell that we are just, we are beside ourselves and we're not able to appreciate life on life's terms right here, right now. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about this school of thought and that in third dimension, there's contrast, there's, you know, hot, cold, and, you know, the litany of that. And so when, when there's a collective agreement about, oh, yeah, everyone's going to get together and hold hands, there's also the opposing side of, well, let's feed off of this fear. So what's mm-hmm. your take on, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be an entity, but, there's energies out there that are definitely getting a buffet smorgasbord this year uh, surrounding fear. So what's your take on uh, agendas of feeding on other people's fear? Um, I think that chaos is an incredibly um, – that there are agents of chaos in the world and that, that are really – that thrive on fear and thrive on keeping people – um, dis- disoriented, uh, disconnected from their truth, disconnected from being grounded, and where there's, it's a lot easier to manipulate people into doing things. It's a lot easier to, it's a lot easier to kind of force an agenda against the flow of the universe 
when everybody is, is scared and everybody is sort of like looking the other way or focused on something. You know, I, the idea of entity, I sort of like, I guess I would say it's something where I acknowledge, I absolutely acknowledge that there are, there are forces, powers greater than ourselves. And I guess what I would say is that when I think about entity, I think so often it has to do with our collective unconscious of trauma, our collective unconscious of all of the stuff we are not addressing and not dealing with. And it starts to create, it starts to basically have a life of its own. And it definitely it is amplified by our fear and is amplified. So in a way, it's sort of like, I, I think it feeds on the fear because it is, it's almost created out of the fear and it's created out of the stuff that we are not addressing, that we're not dealing with, that we're not looking at. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It, it makes total sense. It, it actually goes back a little bit of you saying uh, Catholic prayer, but saying, I know I'm not Catholic. And so you, uh, in your book, you're talking about uh, generational trauma, what have you. And so I, I wanted to ask you, I guess, the same question, but differently, and with uh, collective unconsciousness. So as I think of 100 years ago, I think of people like Yogananda, Neville Goddard, and others, but I also think of like Hitler and Brill and that type of uh, balance of accessing the unconscious. And, you know, at that time, the World War I had just finished, and so there was this eerie feeling, kind of like today. So if there's nothing new under the sun, have you been able to, either my example or other, find uh, parallels that we are repeating? I certainly have been sensing parallels that we've been repeating or that we, are, that we have the potential to repeat or we have the potential to choose to do differently. You know, I've been saying to I've been saying to my husband for since the beginning of this particular administration, God, I, I think I know what it felt like to be a German back in the late nineteen thirties and, and watch the rise of fascism. And you know, and what it feels like to be seeing something happening and also be looking at a train that is, is so big that it's sort of like I'm not sure what I can do as an individual to stop this. And, you know, and, and that correlation between sort of, you know, I mean, I know I was, I'm jumping ahead 20 years, but, but the correlation is sort of funny because in a way it's like we're dealing with like the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak and we're also dealing with sort of the like post, you know, pre-World War II kind of rise of, rise of, of, of some pretty wild stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I just really do think that, we are being given an opportunity to do this in a different way. And I also, you know, you talk about collective unconscious and also the idea of ancestral trauma. And what I really believe is that there are so many chickens that are coming home to roost right now. There are so many ways that our choices as human beings to deny our empathy, to deny our connection to each other, to um, think that somehow, like, the front and the back don't meet. And so that, you know, as long as me and mine get ours, that it doesn't matter if you and yours are starving. I think that this is, you know, there was, I don't know if you heard about Neowise, the comet that was returned, that just returned after 4,500 years in August. Yeah. No. And we could see, you know, it was, it was, it was hard to see. I saw photographs of it. I believe, I could feel, this was, I could feel it in the sky. I kept going out and looking for it and, and trying to find it. And, and just, I didn't have, I just, I only had a pair of binoculars, so I couldn't quite find it, but, but I could feel it. And the thing that was so fascinating was when it was here last, was 4,500 years ago, at the onset of agriculture and basically the onset of what we imagine or perceive as patriarchal culture, patriarchal society. And it's sort of like we have all of these, all of these ways that we've disconnected from the planet, that we've disconnected from each other, that we see ourselves as separate, we see ourselves as individuals that I think are all just sort of being 
are, are coming home to roost and giving us an opportunity to say, do we want to, do we want, you know, we have a choice. We have a chance. We can do things in a different way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I do want to go into the tools, but before I do, I wanted to know if you had any familiarity with the term stacking. I um, I don't th- I don't know I don't think so. Sure. So it's a term in the nootropic world where uh, they're using nootropics to kind of deal with different things. And the reason why I was asking you. I know from personal experience, and I have to throw an asterisk out there, right, <laughs> since I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on TV. Right. So, you know, Neither speak, do I, yeah. Right. <laughs> speak yeah. to a licensed professional uh, at this point. But I did learn um, from being, you know, just feeling other people's energies and what have you. And like you were saying, um, sometimes where if you're thinking the worst of something, um, that there are some diagnoses of AD. ADD or ADHD associated with that. And so with stacking, there was the uh, tyrosine, which is a supplement, and mm-hmm. it would take me out of the whole, you know, the what if. And so it just kept me so focused. And to take a little edge off of that, the stack means, you know, they're two different um, vitamins, would be the ty- uh, theanine. So kind of putting them together put me on an even keel and I noticed the difference where, oh, I'm backsliding again. Uh, you know, it's time to reevaluate if this is something that I'm going through or it's just all in my mind. So I didn't know if mm-hmm. you knew anything mm-hmm. about stacking. Um, I had never heard of it in that particular or that particular term, but you know, I find one of the things I find so fascinating about the whole sort of holistic world is just there are so many modalities and so many different people with so many different systems and vocabulary now that we can mm-hmm. easily be talking about the exact same thing and have just different language in regards to it. Um, and one of the things you just made me think about, because I certainly am not a, you know, not a stranger personally to supplements and, and herbs and flower essences and all kinds of other sort of holistic healing modalities, is that if there's one thing I have found consistently is that the only true constant is change. And that even when I feel like I've dialed something in and I have found, you know, I have found the perfect combo of herbs or, or things, that I will, I will have that experience of like, for example, taking L-theanine was something that really worked for a while. And then suddenly it was sort of like once my system had adapted, then mm-hmm. it no longer, I didn't need it anymore, and my experience mm-hmm. was almost, I would have a paradoxical reaction to it, and it would be different than it had been before. And I think that we live in a culture that has this sort of idea of once you're set, like once you've found the solution, you're set for the rest of your life, and you don't have to worry about it ever again. Mm-hmm. And if there is anything I have found is that that is the absolute opposite of what is true, because the truth is, we are constantly adapting, we are constantly adjusting, we are constantly having to find what is working for us today. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that, and whether it's supplements, whether it's tapping, whether it is um, a meditation practice, having that willingness to be like, the thing that I did last year or the thing that I did yesterday worked yesterday and today this is working. I know, but I'm so you've confused me so much now, Jen, because when I watch a Hollywood movie, they ride off into the sunset. So there's one answer, isn't there? Isn't there? Don't we wish there would be just one answer? Uh, you know, I don't know if you ever listened to the old band, you know, this is showing my age, but the band from um, Devo, you know, um, and their song Freedom of Choice. And it's like that idea of freedom of choice is what we've got. Freedom from choice is what we want. And I think it's really sad that in a lot of ways, sometimes we just get so utterly overwhelmed by all of the choices, especially in modern society, that we just, you know, it's like we get to that place where we just shut down. Um, You know, and I do think that some of finding our way back to finding what's right for us is also about simplifying our life and getting quiet and getting still 
and sort of returning to the the most important things. Absolutely. And, yeah. and speaking of freedom of choice, I do want to go into the tools because as an observer, when all of this began here in Georgia in March, there were the rush to the supermarkets and um, the some of the aisles were full and some were not. Some of the aisles that were not were the vitamins and the fresh produce. The ones that were full were the sugar, sugar candy, salt type of deal um, for dealing with, right, uncertainty. So like you mentioned, there's so many people that are awakening, and there's so many modalities out there. They may not know which direction to turn, but I think from an EFT standpoint, and you have multiple modalities as well, um, mm-hmm. for someone just coming into, what the hell is happening? Am I the only one that's going through this? Uh, what are some directions they can take in terms of tools and um, in, in that in that vein? Well, so EFT EFT is an amazing tool, and one of the things about EFT is that it is something you can do at home, and it is something you can do for yourself, and it is really really good for self soothing. And I do have a lot of resources both um, on my website, which is empathicmastery.com. And also, um, you know, which can lead you over to my YouTube channel where I've got playlists and you can go and check them out and tap along with me and so that you can sort of get a feel for it. But I would say that, you know, right now one of the things we are needing so incredibly is just really fast, you know, really, really, really fast tools that are going to make a difference. And so... One of the things that I find really helpful are tools that are like, that give us the ability to get back into our body and to sort of shift quickly when we notice that we're spinning out. And my stop favorite... Right, stop right there for one second. I don't mean to interrupt you, but when you said out of body, I just wanted you to clarify that for the audience, please. Oh, yes. So I'm actually talking about not necessarily astral projection or you know, like having an out-of-body experience where it's like, you know, you've gone up to the spaceship or something like that. I'm talking about when we are so distressed that we have sort of slipped up into our head and we can't feel our body. Where, or, if we are, or if we are feeling our body, we're feeling jangled and agitated and kind of out of sorts. So... You know, and what I would say is that a lot of times when we are feeling distressed, as human beings, we were taught two things, often very, very early. One was to hold our breath and or to breathe very shallowly because that does tend to to decrease our emotional intensity. The problem with breath holding is that it locks in, it locks in the difficult stuff and it sort of causes us to, it doesn't make it necessarily not happen as much as what it does is it locks it in so that we have to deal with it later. And so breathing is one thing that, that we, we don't necessarily know how to do as a society, and knowing how to breathe so that we get back into our body is a really important thing. And then the other thing that I've seen a lot of us do is that when we are distressed, we go up into our head. We go up into our mental faculties. We start imagining worst-case scenarios. We start running, we, we start running stories and, and telling ourselves about stuff. And the thing about both of these things is that they make us less resourced. They make us less resilient. We are what and what's happening is that our fight or flight mechanism, the amygdala in our brain, has gotten hijacked. And so we are basically in this place of blinders are on and everything is about get me out of this danger, get me out of this danger. The problem with that is that when those blinders are on and when we are reacting instead of responding, we are not as resourced and we are not as capable of figuring out what is really the best approach to this. You know, it's sort of like you take two human beings who are both heated and reactive and frustrated and angry and you try to have them suss it out or work it out, chances are it's going to come to blows. But if you have even one person who's upset and angry and another person who's like, wow, I can really understand why you're so upset about this, 
and can have a calm conversation, a lot of times the calm person can talk the uncalm person off the ceiling and then negotiations can occur and, and, and miracles can unfold. So, um, so what I was going to say is that I think that when it comes to being aware that we're getting hijacked by our fear, that we're getting hijacked, that we're stepping, you know, that we're moving up into our intellect instead of being remaining in our body, that we're, we're breathing shallowly, all of the signs of distress, having tools that are really just that are, are like our go-to tools are really useful. So did that answer your question about, about the, it what does it mean to be out of the body? Yeah. It did. Thank yeah. you. So, so in terms of a tool, if there was one thing that I would encourage people to really just that I can offer is a very, very simple thing is, you know, in Empathic Mastery, the whole premise of Empathic Mastery is a five-step system that starts with recognizing that we're feeling empathic distress, recognizing that something's going on. And the first step is just even like, oh, I'm feeling out of sorts. And then the second step of recognizes, is this mine or is this coming from somebody else or something else? The second step is release. The third step is then protect and start developing better filters and shields and boundaries. The fourth step is connect to um, energy that, because the universe abhors a vacuum. So if we start filling up with positive energy, it's much harder for the negativity to come back. And then the fifth step is act. How do we live and act in a different way so that we really are thriving instead of just thinking? But that first step of just, oh, I'm really feeling out of sorts. I'm really spinning. First step just starts with putting our hands. I I really love to put my hands over my my sternum on my chest or my heart, but really right in this very center kind of, and just with bare with my bare palm over my bare skin, just sort of leaning into my heart and bowing my head just a little bit and closing my eyes and breathing into my heart, and I have. I have my right hand over my, on directly touching my skin and my left hand on top of that hand and just breathing in. And as I breathe out, exhaling any tension or worry. And my fingers are sort of touching underneath my collarbone. And these, the collarbone points are very powerful points for emotional distress and also for grief and can really help us to just return back to what am I really feeling, what is really going on. And so what I like to do is just breathing in and out three times with my hands in one position and then reverse so that the left hand is on my chest and my right hand is over the left hand. And again, do three inhales, breathing into my body, and three you know, exhales, breathing out any tension or worry. And what I find is that that helps me to recognize, like to tune in and to go, oh, I had way too much coffee, or, oh, I really shouldn't have been watching that YouTube. Like I went down the, I went down the, the Facebook wall rabbit hole, or <laughs> I, I, um, you know, I, I just listened to something I shouldn't have listened to, or I just, I just uh, started to indulge a thought that wasn't necessarily so good for me. Or sometimes something is going on and I learn later that something is going on. But just that noticing what am I feeling, what is really happening for me, how is this affecting me, and just really breathing in that calmness and breathing out the tension or worry. And you know, learning how to be in our bodies and learning how to breathe is a remarkably powerful tool. And a lot of times it may not may it's not, it's not a miracle. It's not going to make, you know, if you just, if you just learned that, um, you know, if you just got bad news about something that's going to affect your livelihood or your, you know, the safety of you and yours, then, just three breaths is not necessarily going to, it's not going to change it. But what it will do is it can dial down the intensity enough so that we can start accessing our resilience and we can work and we can then make better choices for ourselves. And we also don't have to act immediately. 
Um, I had somebody call me the other day after learning some very challenging news about their relationship, and just they were panicking. And it was like they were just ready to just blow everything up. And as the calmer person, I just invited them to just do exactly what we just did with putting their hands over their heart and just really breathing and really being present. And just really recognizing that even though this completely sucks, I don't have to act on this right now. Because I think that's one of the things that happens a lot of the time is that when humans are in a state of distress, they think they have to act immediately. And sometimes the best thing we can do is pause and breathe and wait for the dust to settle enough that we can look at our options and make a good choice and make our choices. Now I'm not saying, I mean, certainly if you're in harm's way, get out of harm's way. But a lot of times I think when we're emotional, we are more likely to do something impulsive or rash than if we can allow ourselves to take a breather and just be like, I'm okay, I'm safe, this is all right. A a variation, I'll just say, to the two hands over the heart is one hand on the heart and the other one over your navel. And that is so powerful of just really feeling feeling that connection between that, you know, second chakra just right over your belly button and then the other one on your heart and just breathing again into your body can really help us to just take the edge off enough that we can start making better choices. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you that first step, that recognize something's going on as it relates to artificial intelligence or the collective hive mind. It wasn't until 2016 where I think on a larger scale we realized that through algorithms we think that everyone is seeing the same thing that we are seeing, and that is totally not the case. Uh, Just go on, on, like you said, some of these social media sites, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. how do, what's your take on our relationship with artificial intelligence? In my world, it's almost hand-in-hand. Hand. Uh, I realize that's not the norm. Where do you see that as far as is it going to be a viable um, appendage to us, or is it going to be something that we realize, like you said, with the vitamins before, maybe something you no longer need? You know, I think that's – I think that's – I think the jury is still out. I mean, I absolutely love my devices, and I love using artificial intelligence and also using the Internet, using the interwebs. Um, it, it is absolutely something that can be used for good and it can be used for evil, and we've seen it in both ways. And I love using it as a tool for good. I mean, this is you and I are having this conversation, and it's going to be out in the world because of all of these remarkable tools and you know hopefully the algorithms will see will 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 be favorable and will help to spread the word about this um but i guess i would say i mean i think that in the grand scheme of things this is so new still this is so new but did you see the um the netflix is this the social dilemma did I you did. see that documentary? Oh, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> you know, the thing that would just that really hit me hard in it was that graph at the you know, or that, that graphic where they were showing the sort of the incline and where we went, you know, we were having that we we had that sort of like, you know, I don't know, ascension and then mm. all of a sudden it just did a right angle and it just went poof and it just started to grow exponentially in this way that it's just out of control Hmm. and I just you know I guess I would I would like to imagine also that intelligence has a way of evolving and morphing and that it that that we that we are in the stage right now with artificial intelligence where it's learning it's growing and hopefully it it will it as it evolves it will start learning how to evolve in positive ways. And, you know, if anything, sort of develop qualities of empathy, develop qualities, sort of 
I, I know some people would say this is an oxymoron that, you know, artificial intelligence could have a moral compass, but why not? You know, what mm-hmm. is intelligence and what is the soul? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that movie Her and, and all the others that have come out after it with the relationship that's kind of scary to folks if you try to imagine <laughs> life with mm-hmm. it or life without it. I know there's apps now that you not necessarily have a relationship like boyfriend-girlfriend, but it's talking to you like a best friend. And right. it, it's really interesting how far it's come. If we're talking about technology of, of, of Dragon Naturally Speaking, which was the early 2000s, and we laughed at it. And now yeah. it's, you know, <laughs> voice search. So everyone's used to it now. It's no big deal. Right, so. right, 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 right. Oh, God, Dragon Dictate. <laughs> Don't even get me started. <laughs> oh, that, was such, that was just such a nightmare. Yeah. Um, yeah, and now it's like we have these apps. You just speak into your phone, and it's like, you know, transcriptions. Transcriptions are easy, easy, easy. Yeah. So, yeah, it's turn a completely different sometimes. world. I had to turn off the app sometimes because uh, it would say it would it keep ringing like I miss you I haven't talked to you how's everything going I'm like whoa okay it's yeah, time to yeah. step away from this app <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean I'm not particularly inclined towards the AI apps on my phone I mean especially um, I you know I I'm not a huge like like I there have been a few too many times where I've told Siri to go, what what she can go do to herself <laughs> <She's> <laughs> now that's not very nice but it's also so i generally have i i usually have those sort of listening or sort of the the assistant apps turned off um and that's actually something i'd like to that i i would comment about in terms of self-care and just the sort of the stimulation that we continuously are exposed to in this modern world is that you have permission to curate your experience like, for example, I'm amazed at the number of people who do not turn off notifications, you know, mm-hmm. and, like, what does this have to do with being highly sensitive and empathic? Being highly sensitive and empathic means that we're already sensitive and taking on probably a lot more than a lot of other people are. Do not have your Facebook Messenger notifications turned on. Do not have your Twitter, you know, notifications turned on. Turn off the things that are going to constantly be having your phone beeping and booping in your computer, like flashing stuff off the, across the screen that's pulling your attention away from whatever it is and also directing your emotional and psychic energy towards things that you have no need to be focused on. Mm-hmm. You're here. You're here. Uh, before yeah. you go, I do have one last question. Um, I did get some bad news in the mail a week and a half ago, it was from the Homeowners Association, and they said that there's no Halloween activities, parade, or any of that stuff. So another thing down that's been ruined this year. So we're yeah. going to go to the next month of hopefully getting together for the holidays. And for the for those that are coming into their own now, um, what's going on? I'm getting all these feelings. Uh, are they mine or are they not? What would you suggest as an activity uh, when they're with their families for the first time this year and they're not the same person that they were last year? How are they going to deal with uh, uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so when they had too much to drink or what have you? Well, and hopefully they'll be getting together with uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so after the election. <laughs> so <laughs> And I also just really want to say, you know, this actually, um, I think I'm going to take this, this in a slightly different direction in the sense of one of the things that I'm noticing coming from a lot of the highly sensitive empathic people I'm working with is the pressure to do things that they don't want to do. Um, and particularly in regards to this pandemic, I am surrounded by people who kind of have their finger on the pulse and they are really aware of what's going on and can see things in a way that some people cannot. And as a result, what I'm noticing and I'm seeing as a common theme is I have a lot of people around me who are like, I'm not comfortable taking my kids trick-or-treating or I'm not comfortable, I'm not comfortable going to this gathering of um, drinking, unmasked drinking people. And I guess what I would say is, first and foremost, just because your family is saying we should get together for the holidays, 
does not mean it's a good idea. We are mm-hmm. in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I, I, my, I mean, my dad died of COVID back in May, and we have mm-hmm. not had a funeral for him. It's hard to hear that. Because, yeah, I mean, it sucks. But it's also about acknowledging the gravity of what is going on in the world right now. And so I would say that if somebody is considering gathering for the holidays with their family members, it's really important to evaluate, are you doing it because you want to? Are you doing it because it really does feel safe? Or are you doing it because basically you don't want to deal with getting some, you know, side eye and getting shade from some family member who's like, mm, she thinks she's too good for, you know, to, to come to our family gathering. And it's sort of like at a certain point we absolutely must look out for ourselves and our families and do what is, what is safest as opposed to just acquiesce or, or go along with the social pressure. So I guess what I would say is, when it comes to these gatherings, first off, it's like, is it safe? Is it reasonable? We cannot possibly know. I mean, they're talking right now about spikes that are going to be pretty substantial and the pandemic continuing. And so I guess I would say is just because your family wants you to do it, just because somebody doesn't want the pandemic to be happening, doesn't mean that we, that, that they, we get to do the thing. And you know, that said, I actually created a whole sort of little guide for holidays that somebody can find over at actually a holiday help for empaths. And where I talk a lot about strategizing your family visits, thinking in advance about what you want to do, thinking about your exit strategies, thinking about how are you going to navigate. So like, for example, if you know that, um, you know, that that Uncle Frank is notorious for drinking like, you know, a couple tumblers of scotch and turning into a complete jerk by, the, by a certain point, then you are like, I choose to not be in a room alone with Uncle Frank. I'm going to go and my strategy is that I'm going to have a camera and I'm going to take pictures of everybody and I'm going to focus on like doing that or I'm going to lead the you know, Cards Against Humanity game, which, let me say, playing Cards Against Humanity with your 83-year-old mother is hysterical. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, like, like doing things where we're anticipating our strategies or anticipating the pitfalls. The other thing is when it comes to visiting with family, if you have a special diet, I encourage people, I really believe, bring food that you know you can eat. (laughs) I know that may be like, but bring food you know you can eat. If you are, if you, if you're around people, especially if you're a vegetarian and everybody else is meat eaters or if you're gluten free and everybody else eats gluten, it really helps to be sure that there is something in your bag that is going to keep you from like either making choices you regret later or finding yourself like crashing with low blood sugar. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this question is so big. I just want to say, like, this could be an entire hour, or like multiple hours of conversation about navigating family events and social events as, as a highly sensitive person, and how do we do it in a way that takes care of us? Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. a uh, public service announcement, if anything. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Oh, before I forget, I'm a big movie fan, but it was not on my radar. And I had to let you know that after the call, I'm going to watch Little Buddha because uh, I did <gasps> not know about it. <laughs> oh, yay. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, <laughs> have fun watching, as my brother refers to him as Canoe. <laughs> because he's so wooden. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly when he's playing Siddhartha, it's really, but it, oh, I love Little Buddha, obviously, I, yes. Oh, I'm so excited you're going to watch that. That's awesome. Yes, nice, definitely. So the particulars, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you the time. Of, I, I appreciate the hour you spent with us, but please tell people again where they can get in touch with you uh, to pick up your book and social media if they want to reach out to you. 
Absolutely. So the easiest thing to do is just head over to empathicmastery.com, and that will lead you to everything else. And if you want specific help for for the holidays, holidayhelpforempaths.com. So empathicmastery.com, it will take you. It will take you to pretty much everything else. So, and Hamsa, it, this has been such a pleasure. What a juicy, like all over the all over the planet, like whizzing out to the star systems. Awesome conversation you and I have had. I'm so grateful that to, that we've had this chance. Well, it sounds like we may cross paths again at some point. So definitely keep us in mind. And with that, you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza and Jennifer Moore. It was a pleasure. Let's stay in touch. Absolutely, Hamza. Absolutely. Such a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay.